Welcome to Plato's Cave. I'm Jordan Myers, and I'm a master's student in philosophy at the University of Houston. You're listening to a reading group episode of the show, which means that in this episode, I continue the moral responsibility series by discussing the paper Asymmetrical Freedom by Susan Wolfe with three non-philosopher friends, Adam, Giffen, and Brian, because philosophy shouldn't just be for philosophers. And so in this episode, we return um, to Susan Wolfe's work. We discussed this, uh, or we discussed her work previously, in this series and this is a really really interesting paper Um, and I don't want to say too much about the paper because it's sort of a hard one to summarize in a lot of ways Um, but I think Wolf in this paper is taking a look at the interaction between morality and freedom um, the condition of value and the condition of freedom so this is a really interesting paper that I think opens a lot of questions and it's one that I very much enjoyed um, reading and discussing. And it's one that I intend to pick up and reread. It seems like one of those papers with a lot of hidden gems uh, that you can only really get upon several rereadings. So if you haven't, I, I would recommend reading this paper actually before listening to the discussion. But if you want to ignore that advice and listen anyway, I still think we hopefully do a good job of, of recapping her points that she makes in the paper. So with that being said, I hope that you enjoy our discussion of Susan Wolf's Asymmetrical Freedom. I'm learning that Wolf has like a certain style of writing and that style is crazy in the best way possible <laughs> like it's very good it, it, it's very good so we're doing um we're doing another wolf paper in the series and this one is titled asymmetrical freedom and actually so this is uh pu- this was published in 1980 which was the year right before her the importance of free will which we did with that was 81 i believe so these were two just like back-to-back papers and the and the thesis of this one is um uh i guess i guess they're you know the papers are kind of related but there's not an obvious you know sort of sequential connection between them at least at least not one that i'm seeing but but maybe i'm missing it but i might be able to summarize the thesis of this paper as you know and and granted this is uh, open to be changed as my understanding changes of the paper. But she's basically going to argue that someone can be praiseworthy for one's actions, but not symmetrically blameworthy. And this is because praiseworthy acts must result from adherence to the good and thus are determined in the right way, negating the standard uh, or the standards of indetermination held by compatibilists of both types. Which is a, re- I mean, which is a, a very, very ambitious um, paper, and but I actually thought this was really cool uh, and well placed in the series because I can definitely see notes throughout the paper of, like you know, a bit of character coherence here, a bit of reasons responsiveness here, a bit of second order desires here. So it's, it's, it's nice to be reading this paper kind of at the point in the series that we're in. Um, yeah, especially after reasons responsive. Yes, you know, like yes. you know, compatibilism, just some variant of that, because yeah, we there's a lot of that in here. So. Yes, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, okay, so maybe what I'll do is I'll, I'll read a few kind of you know tabling introduction quotes that we always do, and then then we'll we'll move through the paper because it's it's just, it's just all good. It's just all good in this paper. So, okay, let me. I'll start off with the first paragraph. Um, 
she says, in order for a person to be morally responsible, two conditions must be satisfied. First, he is a moral, he must be a free agent, an agent that is whose actions are under his control. For if it is the actions he performs are not up to him to decide, he deserves no credit or discredit for doing what he does. Second, he must be a moral agent, an agent that is to whom moral claims apply. For if the actions he performs can be neither right nor wrong, then there is nothing to credit or discredit him with. I shall call the first condition the condition of freedom and the second the condition of value. And she's going to do something very interesting with these two values in the paper. So in the, on the next page, 152, she says, many people believe that the condition of value is dependent on the condition of freedom, that moral prescriptions make sense only if the concept of free will is coherent. In what follows, I shall argue that the converse is true, that the condition of freedom depends on the condition of value, which is a really interesting claim. So she's basically just pointing to this assumption that honestly, I think all four of us have been working with too, to some degree, at least I know it's been present in my mind that in order for something to be um, praiseworthy or blameworthy, uh, that is dependent on this condition of freedom that, you know, we've been using this term throughout the paper that you could have done otherwise, um, and she wants to actually reverse the order of, of the dependency there and claim that uh, <laughs> just the reverse of what she says, um, that, the, that the condition of freedom is conditioned upon the condition of value. So she's going to say, this is the first sentence of the next paragraph. I shall say that an agent's action is psychologically determined, because this is an important terminology for her in this paper, if his action is determined by his interests, that is, his values or desires, and his interests are determined by his heredity or environment. So there's a lot of big questions that obviously jump out with that definition, but she's basically saying that an action is psychologically determined if it is determined by someone's interests. And that is like maybe the first note of this kind of character cohesion that's that's littered throughout the paper. Um, so with those kind of introductory quotes um, put on the table, I think we can kind of get to her first point, which to be honest, okay, th this first point that she makes, because th this isn't, I don't, I don't think that this first point is necessarily sort of the apotheosis of the paper in any sense, but it is absolutely a, like a base claim that she's making. That to be honest, I, I kind of experienced a gut punch of my own. Like you, know, Adam, you were talking about, <laughs> Adam, you were talking about your, you know, you were gut punched um, um, by Fisher's first paper about the second order desires account. Okay, in what follows in the next couple of pages, she made me realize that in the, in the in the first part of um, in the first part of the series that we did, um, I had been extremely. I guess naive is a word about being able to dismiss a certain kind of condition of freedom. And I, and I think that she, she lays out that you can't obviously do it as dismissively as I was doing it in the first part of this um, series. So, okay, let me just read a, like, read a quote from her real quick. So uh, third paragraph on page 152, she says, many people believe that if psychological determinism is true, 
the condition of freedom can never be satisfied. For if an agent's interests are determined by heredity and environment, they claim it is not up to the agent to have the interests he has. And if his actions are determined by his interests as well, then he cannot but perform the actions he performs. In order for an agent to satisfy the condition of freedom, then his actions must not be psychologically determined. So she's basically laying out this claim that what I might say at this point, a naive incompatibilist determinist might say. And we've expressed, I, Giffen and I have expressed uh, sentiments very much like this in the first part of the series. Um, and I now think that expressing them as dismissively as I did was just extremely naive of me because she lays out, it just crystallized terms. This is the kind of gut punch. And I've honestly been kind of this realization has been creeping up on me a little bit throughout the second part of the series, but this just drove drove the realization home for me because she says, uh, next paragraph, let us imagine, however, what an agent who satisfied this condition would have to be like. So she lay, so she's, she's basically saying, you know, consider what it would mean for the agent's actions not to be determined by his interest because these, these, what, I don't think she uses this word, but I'll, I'll call them naive incompatibilists. We'll say, well, you know, look, you know, you didn't choose your interests and those are the things that determine your actions, right? And so she says, okay, well, you know, imagine like what this person would look like. Um, you know, she, I won't use her language because I, I've quoted enough at this point, but she basically says like, this person would have no character coherence over time, right? Like they would have to be free to just, override like their own impulses but in a way that makes no sense um you know because uh you know, she's you know she says you know some agent though he thinks his neighbor is a fine and agreeable fellow could just get up one day ring the doorbell and punch him in the nose it's like yeah it she, she's pointing to this weird standard that incompatibilists claim where they're like oh well you know your, your actions are, in, uh, are determined by your, uh, your intentions. And so she says, okay, like, what would it mean for you to act not on determined intentions, though? It would just be like, you would have no coherence of character across time. Am I, am I making sense with that so far? Yeah, I mean, like the, the idea is just that how could it be any other way? You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, like that, that is pretty much the argument. I, I actually, I do want to read like some actual... Okay. Parts of this here, just so we can, um, because I okay. So the psychological determinism here, there are. What page is this? Um, same page here. Okay. I, it's the it's the many people uh, paragraph okay. here. So let's see. They're they're kind of like the two levels. I'm trying to find where that is. Where it's like, okay, and actually at the top here. So if action, um. I shall say that an agent's action is psychologically determined if his actions are determined by his interests, that is, his values or desires, and his interests are determined by heredity or environment. Hmm. The reason I kind of reread that is just um, the two scenarios kind of address each level there. Yes. Where it's like, so, so consider first what it would mean for the agent's actions not to be determined by his interests. Hmm. So this would mean, I think, that the agent has the ability to act against everything he believes in <laughs> exactly. and, everything, and everything he cares about. So you like the agent could have interests, but then you, and regardless would, of what those interests are, you could act against them. 
or in opposition yes. to them in a way that somehow didn't also conserve your interests. Like it would make yes. no sense. Yeah. Like, competing interests. Ex- exactly, exactly. Exactly. Good point, Giffen. It's not like these interests outweigh other interests. It's just that there are interests in one direction, but you're just going to behave in another way. Yeah. The whole and, scope of your interests are just being betrayed. Yeah, exactly. Constantly. Exactly. Exactly. So there's not even like a pattern to it. It's just <laughs> no. like, it's not even like there's like the, the outlier case of you've suddenly behaved, not your interest. No, it's, you, you, it doesn't seem like you behave with regard to your interests at all. Um, exactly. And then, but then the other one, I just wanted to touch on that one too. Um, the next level down. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, um, it's the second paragraph on 153. Okay. So so she says, you know, yeah, okay. <laughs> so she says, okay, you know, let's 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 get even deeper here. So let us assume instead that his actions are determined by his interests, but that his interests are not determined by anything external to himself. So she's saying, okay, you know, if if you if you don't buy that, then let's go even deeper. So his actions are determined by his interests, sure, but his interests aren't determined by anything external to to himself. And then she basically you know, lays out her description of the wanton, uh, you know, essentially, this is a person who, um, you know, she says, though, perhaps he loves his wife, it must be possible for him to not love her, <laughs> you know, yeah, but, but, you know, he cares about people in general, but it must be possible for him to not care. And he couldn't have any reasons for his interests, at least no reasons of the sort we normally have, because those would be, of course, determined. Um, so he, he couldn't love his wife, uh, because of the way his wife is, um, because, you know, that's not up for him to decide, right? So she, she's basically painting the same picture that Frankfurt painted um, with the wanton. Um, and obviously, you know, uh, we agree with, with, um, with uh, Frankfurt that, that that person seems intuitively obviously not responsible, someone who just doesn't even care about their desires. Um, you know, she she says an agent who didn't care about these things, one might think would have to be crazy. Yeah, like I say, like the wanton is, you know, cra- if you want to call him crazy, fine. If you want to call him just, you know, not a human. Disturbed. Yeah, as, as far, like, you know, not quite what it means to be a human. Um, sure. So and even more, you know, she says, like, one might think that he would have to be crazy even if he had the ability not to care. <laughs> exactly. You know what I mean? So, yeah, like, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, exactly. so even if that somehow that was you know, within your power to act one way or the other, not just acting that way, but if it was with, even if it's within your power, it's, <laughs> I mean, because it's a live you have, option, you're crazy. Well, yeah, because it's, it's not, it's not even like a live, op- it, it's, it will happen, right. Or it won't, but it doesn't really matter because you can't <laughs> distinguish between the two. So it's, it, it's, mm. it happening is the same as it not happening to that individual. So, I see, I see echoes of her point. Well, I guess, more premonitions because this was before but I, but I see shades of her uh the the turn in the in the 1981 paper here um I definitely see see um proceedings of it here but but she says you know so the conclusion then is that in any case it seems we if we require an agent to be psychologically undetermined we cannot expect him to be a moral agent now I I just that that conclusion just seems completely right to me um, because, and, and this is where that, that sentence and the following one, which I will now quote, when we imagine an agent who performs right actions, it seems we imagine an agent who is rightly determined, 
whose actions that that is are determined by the right sorts of interests and whose interests are determined by the right sorts of reasons. Okay, so so those two sentences drove home this point to me that I've been had been kind of trying to ignore for a few for a few episodes at this point. But she's pointing to something totally right here. That is you can't just say that determinism rules out all moral responsibility because that's endorsing this implicit statement that you'd have to be inde- or, or rather undetermined um, to have some sort of a moral responsibility remain. But then you're basing the condition of, of moral responsibility on being a wanton or having no <laughs> character coherence. And both of those are obviously not conditions of moral responsibility. So you can't just be this simplistic indeterminist, or I'm sorry, incompatibilist, and say, well, determinism is true. Therefore, like, it just follows that, that there are just no shades of responsibility or anything. Like, you can't use determinism in that way to dismiss it because you're implicitly saying, well, the, so, so what is the standard for responsibility? It would be either being a wanton or having no character coherence. Like, that, I don't know why, but th- like this, it just drove that point home to me. And it was something I totally missed before. No, it's it's definitely a point that I I've been I've been kind of like getting to for a while at this yes, point as well. It's where been like creeping I, up. <laughs> I kind of I kind of said something similar last time because I when I was talking to the friend we kind of like dug down to it. I'm like, why would you behave any other way? Like you know, like that example I gave yes, where it's like yes. you're, you're you're given all reasons, you know, um, <laughs> like and, yes. like why why would you behave a different way than you did? Exactly. You know what I mean? So it's um, yeah. So, so that, that is her kind of, that I see as really the grounding of what will then be the more positive assertions here. She's pointing out that like, look now, now I don't think that she, now, now this is why I think if you're going to be a, a responsibility skeptic, you have to do it in a Galen Strassen way. You can't do it in this like I was going to say this like kind of Sam Harris saw Smolansky way, but honestly, I mean, like Harris, I I think he kind of is more of a Galen about this, but when, but you'll hear him say things that honestly do succumb to this criticism by Wolf, right? Like you'll hear him say um, the really simplistic versions of the, the Frankfurt PAP point, right? Like he'll just say like, your actions were wholly determined. You couldn't do otherwise. Therefore you're not morally responsible at all. Right. And the, and she's pointed to the fact that like, OK, that seems obviously intuitive until you look at the counterfactual, because, because to be undetermined doesn't make any sense. Um, but OK, I've, I've reiterated that point enough. It was just that, that that for whatever reason, I mean, it just fully it fully hit home for me in this paper. Uh, I just wonder with this, though, it's kind of like. Like she, like she points out that being undetermined makes no sense, which we all agree to. And that mm-hmm. you're not suddenly a moral agent if you're mm-hmm. undetermined. No. But, but at the same time, like, I think laying bare determinism, um, and even even if you're not saying that, even like if it's not implicit in what you're saying that somehow like being undetermined makes you a moral agent, mm-hmm. I think laying bare. The fact that determinism, there's something to determinism yes. that makes that makes 
the concept of moral responsibility, a little incoherent general, no matter which parameters you put in place. You know what I I mean? So I I have this question written down to ask her about. It's exactly the one you're asking is like, because there's also some way in which, because so determinism seems relevant still because it makes the objective attitude way different in a world in which in which determinism is true and in, in a world in which it's false, right? Because in a world in which it's true, uh, then, then the objective attitude seems to have a punch. In a world in which it's not true, it doesn't seem to have that punch, um, namely because people co- like adhere to patterns of behavior because they're determined. Is that, is that, did you have a, did you have a different concern than that? Or am I kind of getting at the general area of your, of your thrust? No, I, I think, um, I don't know. I I just have like several different views on this where I I feel like (laughs) she's kind of setting up like this dichotomy in a sense where it's, it's saying like, okay, well, if you thought you would be, you know, somehow a moral agent, if you were undetermined, you'd be wrong. And it's like, that's a really good point. That's true. You wouldn't be, mm. but that isn't somehow been implied that there is some sense of being a moral agent when you're determined. Um, I think she does. Well, so, so, okay. We have, she, she argues for it. Yeah. She, she she's going to argue for it, but I, but I'm just saying like, um, I don't think that that doesn't follow. You know what okay. I mean? So, so like when somebody, you know, says like, you know, your arguments, like at the beginning of like this, you know, um, like serious mm-hmm. that, okay. Like when you lay determinism bare, like ultimately if each step in this determined process, it, you're not responsible for any of it, then how can you be responsible for your behavior? Mm-hmm. If you lay that bare, I still think that makes sense. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? So it, there's at least you know, some intuitive pull to it. I know. I think it still makes sense. I mean, like, <laughs> so, I mean, we'll, 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 we'll have to get yeah. into this paper. What do you guys think? Giffen? Uh, um, I, I kind of, guys think? I guess my thoughts just at this point in the paper, when I first read it, were, I think probably a little bit more aligned with yours in that I thought she was kind of establishing a framework here. Um, she like wanted to introduce the concept of being psychologically determined and then explain that like, to be psychologically not determined is kind of incoherent, like with respect to like moral agency. Um, so, but I didn't really um, jump any further than that at this point. Like it was just all set up to me. Okay. I So maybe this is a point of question then from me, because I didn't. So when she was talking about the, you know, imagine what it would be like to be not determined at all. I thought that she was talking about both psychological determinism, but also metaphysical determinism there. So yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Both. Yeah. 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 Okay. Because just, just to spell that question out more um, in the case in which your actions are psychologically determined, they are always metaphysically determined, but an action could be psychologically indetermined or undetermined. Um, which she'll get into, but in a way that still succumbs to metaphysical determinism, right? Like the idea that natural laws preceding plus any quantum randomness in the universe will result in the the resulting state of affairs, which includes you, obviously, like the totality of you. Yeah. Um, One of the oddities from this paper that I like in my experience was the fact that she kind of makes that comparison like a little bit later. 
thought mm-hmm. it would have been a little bit useful to have it like when she introduces the concept of psychological determinism because i think it's towards like the back end of the paper where she kind of very clearly lays out the distinction and how it could be possible that you know one could be but not the other yeah but maybe the so i don't know but perhaps the reason why she didn't hear is because these remarks are more aimed at metaphysical determinism um, Wait, the ones like on 153, you mean? I believe so. Now, I could be mistaken ab- about that, but but I think that they're intended to result against the person who's hinging their entire view on metaphysical determinism's truth. So like libertarians, essentially. Okay, because uh, whenever I read it, I thought this was kind of like the section started in like 152 with like where she defined psychologically determined and then kind of like the end of... 153 was kind of like the culmination of that. I mean, one thing that's kind of confusing is the fact that she uses determined sometimes as a shorthand for psychologically determined based on like the subject matter of the sentence. Mm-hmm. And then other times it seems like she, you, I agree with you. She does seem to kind of be invoking metaphysical <laughs> determinism. I, so I maybe do. Some language the, choice could have been like, you know, adjusted slightly. In the but, margins, I do have notes of I, I'll put up, I put, you know, psychologically or metaphysically in front of some instances of the word determined. In the yeah, paper. I have some question yeah. marks around. Uh, but, as well. but, but my point is that because every case in which you are psychologically determined is a case in which you are metaphysically determined, the, the proceeding of 152 and 153 is, or at least it could be aimed more at the metaphysical indeterminist, um, the libertarian, for instance. So like, yeah, the, I think you're right. She, she probably is aiming towards like the like, you know, tackling the intuitions of those people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just wasn't 100% clear to me at this stage, um, mm-hmm. you know, where the distinction was. That's all. Well, I'm curious because so my my because Giffen in the in the first part of the series, you and I were making very similar sounds about how metaphysical determinism vitiated this. What did you, you mean think? back in the spring, like part one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Part yeah. One, like part one of the series. Yeah. Um, because this this does change my mind about that. Now, I don't so so that means like you you can't be that it just changes the way that i would lay out the argument and it but it but it changes it in a non it's not merely semantic for me what yeah mm-hmm. i'm at this point after reading this and we'll get to like more of the main thrusts later in the discussion but like i still kind of do hold to like that intuition of like you know if the determinism is like true and like any step in like mm-hmm. kind of that process, you know, from before you're born to like, um, mm-hmm. you know, before every single one of your actions is kind of determined in that way. That's the sense of responsibility related to like having, well, the language is getting mm-hmm. a little fuzzy, but I do feel like the kind of the intuition there still is holding strong to me. Um, but so, based on like kind of how we can interpret this paper, I see Wolf here trying to establish, mm-hmm. you know, a, kind of moral responsibility in like a way that kind of satisfies our like general intuitions right like the way yeah. we would describe it generally um within the bounds uh, so let me ask i'm not 100 percent committed to a position at this point i'm curious there are a couple notes i have throughout the paper especially towards the end where i like am curious to hear your thoughts because i'm not sure if i fully grasped her meaning or was misinterpreting so the way I thought about, because because initially I was res- like I was trying to resist this too, and I did the same thing you did, where it was like no, but it still seems like you know if determinism is true, then you're not morally responsible at all, right? So if you lay that out in formal logic, you're saying you know if D, then 
not MR or whatever, right? Like yeah. if determinism is true. So modus tollendo ponens or however the Latin comes out is, so if you want, so if you want the antecedent to, to be false, then that means that the conditional, the, the first premise has to be false. But then she points out the very issues with that being the case. Um, so I was just curious, like if you had any thoughts on that too, because you and I were arguing this pr point pretty strongly in the first uh, series. So, so basically she's pointing to the fact that if your reasoning is, if determinism is true, then moral responsibility doesn't make any sense. Then for you to say that moral responsibility makes sense, determinism has to be false. But then she points out the reasons why that doesn't seem coherent. I mean, yeah, to me, this was a little bit more semantic, at least in my first reading. Um, I'm curious if the discussion will change that. But it was kind of like she wants to define, she wants to like save some sense of moral responsibility. And she was establishing a framework. Um, well, not not that point, but but because I, I don't think the first point that I just said is semantic at all. Like it, that's very. You know, say it again. Okay, so so she was saying so there you can imagine a type of person, right? Like maybe Giffen, maybe not. Let's like you know who, whoever you can imagine a type of person saying because metaphysical determinism is true, therefore moral responsibility makes no sense, right? So she's saying, okay, this is just like a rule of formal logic or whatever, right? So if you want to flip the truth claim of the antecedent there, then you have to logically flip the truth condition of the initial conditional, right? Or the initial premise of the conditional. So, but then, so then that's saying for moral responsibility to make any sense, you'd have to be undetermined in some way. And then she's going to say, well, then that collapses into either being a wanton of some sort or having no character coherence of some sort. So I'm wondering then. Does it really go that way logically both ways there? Are you sure about that? Because I'm imagining the yeah, way I, I was intuiting let me, it. Let me at least. write that out. Okay. Yeah, the, the way I intuited it was like um, it simply is kind of consistent with the idea that there is no moral responsibility. But Susan Wolf was trying to say, like, we can still, like, describe something as and still capture, like, our meaning when we say mm -hmm. morally. Responsible. So that's why I said it was more semantic. But if, from what I'm gathering, you're saying D, you know, therefore not R. No, I, or, so I'll write it out right okay, now. Please. Um, so it, this is uh, this is like a formal logic principle if yeah. you have determinism is true then not moral responsibility yeah this squiggle means not right so then if you have not not mr so it's that just means that more you want there to be some sort. so it's not not the case that moral responsibility exists right so you want moral responsibility to be the case then that means that if not not mr then not d so then you can't have determinism be true so if that's what if this is what you want to argue then logically speaking, if your conditional is this, it has to collapse into you saying that determinism is not true. Then she's going to say, okay, then you either have to tell me why being a wanton or having no character coherence makes any sense for moral responsibility. Well, is it not? The, well, you can just, you're saying if you are doing that, you're arguing for moral responsibility. But I think in this case, you simply wouldn't argue for moral responsibility because no, of the contradiction. No, no, no. no, no, no. Missing? It's not that it's it's saying, OK, someone says that because determinism is true, then that then there is yeah. no like more responsibility is like incoherent. Right? right. So then the counterfactual would be, OK, what would have to be the case for moral responsibility to be coherent, i.e. Okay. not not MR? Yeah, then that would be 
implicitly can because you would have to you know, do this work that we're doing now but implicitly you're saying that then determinism would have to not be true because well, of yeah. modus to lend opponents but right? but whenever you're looking at that um like those are like equivalent um expressions right like because we didn't really add any other argument uh to like the equation mm-hmm. like those are equivalent um i think you're missing the the importance of the accepting the conditional you're taking the first conditional as a premise. When someone says that because determinism is true, mm-hmm. therefore moral responsibility doesn't make any sense. Right. That's a premise. It's not just a conditional. That's that's like you're you're taking that as a premise. So then if you ask what would have to be the case in order for moral responsibility to make sense, impl- if you say that then it follows that if you want that, then it's not D. Yeah, I agree with like that framing, but that would be the exact thing that would lead someone to say, therefore, there is no moral responsibility because the concept of lack of determinism is incoherent. (laughs) No, no, no. You're focusing on the wrong part of it still. She's it's not about there not being moral responsibility. You've not you, but the the royal you, you've hinged the claim on saying that because determinism is true, therefore right. no more responsibility. But then if we ask the question, what would have to be the case for moral responsibility to make sense? That person who has just endorsed that conditional has to then say that indeterminism is true. Or it, so are you laughing because you either agree or disagree with me, Adam? Have I? I'm laughing because it now makes sense. Because <laughs> it now makes sense? Is it? Yeah. You have yeah, because, to write it out in formal logic. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and is it, it's, exa- it, yeah. This yeah. Rocks my, dude, this okay, rocks explain my it again. When I, got it. when I wrote this out, it's, it's such a good point by her. And I had to write it out like literally in formal logic to get it. Okay. Giffen. Giffen. Yeah. Okay. I, 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 I wrote up some absurd nonsense here. So you have to bear with it. Okay. But, uh, okay. But, so, okay. So if smile, then show teeth, right? <laughs> okay. But if not show teeth, then not smile. So simple, simple, right? Okay. Okay. But if determinism, then no moral responsibility. Sure. Right? Yeah. But if not, no moral responsibility, then not determinism, which is not true. That, that aspect is not true. But that or, would lead us to think that is true. Exactly. Or if you're going to do, so there's several bullets she sets you up to bite. If you're going to, if you succumb to that, this, this formal logic, then you either are forced to defend that being a wanton or having no character coherence uh, uh, makes sense for, for obtaining moral responsibility, which we all just agreed quite reasonably makes no sense because you're a wanton or you have no character coherence. So she's setting you up to bite either of these two bullets that I think we agree are impossible to bite. Yeah. Which, I, which is like, dude, when I wrote, I told you I got gut punched by this in the same way that you did by the Fisher paper, Adam. Like this was a, this was a point that just like it, crazy good. Yeah. I, I, I didn't see that at all, but now I, I mean, that's, because that's you, really, really interesting. It's so, so interesting because the the person who is able to get out of this is a, I, I think, I would have to maybe ask her about this, is a Galen Strassen style moral skeptic because he says, I'm totally with you, Wolf. It actually, it doesn't matter if 
determinism is true or false. He doesn't hinge his uh, argument on the truth condition of determinism. And so I think that's a way out of it. But Giffen and I previously in this series, I was being totally naive about that. I was saying, well, you know, it's obvious. (laughs) I was was being totally naive about how determinism obviously ruled out any condition of or any or any way that moral responsibility might obtain. But she points out that that but the problem is, is that when people say that, you know, maybe someone has a good argument against that, but um, uh, but 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 that you're not you're not biting the bullet of the counterfactual there. So what, what is that called? The contrapositive, the, the second a, statement there. I, I think I think oh, that's what it's called, right? Yeah, um, it would. It's just a double negation in like formal logic. I think it's the contrapositive. I, I think it's the contrapositive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I I forgot you could do that, and that actually can indicate it's a huge. lot because it's, it's, dude, the it's, contrapositive it's, it's, is. The other side of the coin. Yes. So, yes. yeah. Does that and make sense now, Giffen? Because I, I, that made no sense to me at first. It still doesn't make sense to me, to be because, frank. Because the, the, the contrapositive implies something that we agree isn't right. I guess I forgot. It, it's it's <laughs> incoherent. I, can you, I actually just one more time. I want okay. you to explain to me what is false about the contrapositive. So it's saying, so it's saying that um, if they're is more responsibility then it's not determined you have to understand i think this is the part you're not getting given the part that the part that is crucial to this is that the con- informal logic conditionals are premises right so basically yeah, i took a class on formal logic i'm familiar with like the framework okay so you have p1 premise one is that if D then not then not R. R. Yes, yeah, I yes. got that. Then and you're using gonna... a transformation which is logically sound to get this following statement. Well, it's, it's not a uh, yeah. So she's asking you, okay, so then under what conditions would moral responsibility obtain, i.e., not not MR? Um, then if that's the case, modus tollendo ponens says that for the antecedent to be negated in all cases, that means the uh, first, I, I don't know why the like uh, term for that is escaping me, but D has to be negated. Um, so if that's the case, then she's going to ask you, okay, if the condition for not not MR means not D, then how on earth does being not determined get you moral responsibility? Because that is the state of either being a wanton or having no character coherence, which we've all just agreed doesn't make any sense for someone being morally responsible. Yeah, I still don't. I don't what I what part? Don't wait, wait. Actually, I want to go. I want to go this direction. Um, okay. Do you agree, Giffen, that for like a conditional to be true, the contrapositive needs to be true as well? You have because, like, because, like, that is the case. Like with like formal uh, logic, yeah. like they do need to be. They they both have to be true. And if there's like, um, yeah, some sort of incoherence. I mean, yeah, that like again, I understand like the uh, the formal logic. That, that those are simply equivalent um, statements. Yeah, right? sure, sure. It's phrased I, 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 differently. Sure, you, you totally get that. So, um, so like the contrapositive in this sense makes no sense. Like, doesn't like, it? Like it doesn't because as we're saying, if because... more, if there is more responsibility, then no determinism. Right. So, 
So then she's going to ask you, what do you mean about indeterminism being true that gives you moral responsibility? Because you are then faced with either defending, which you previously agreed with. But it would be consistent to say with that in mind that there is no moral responsibility. It's an if-then statement. But then that conclusion can simply be, then there is no moral responsibility. No, no, you're missing it. You think that you're advocating for a Galen Strassen point, but you're not because you've bought the first conditional. But, but, but to be honest, I don't want to hash out this point. I, I, like, that's fine. Part of that's going to get cut anyway, because that would be arduous to listen to. Um, yeah, just because just we were really struggling at first. to come Yes, yes. I'll, I'll, I'll synthesize that point in the audio. Um, because, because so the reason why I'm desperate to, I don't want to get hung up on that particular issue, but, but because that, that's, I mean, that's merely kind of grounds for like the more positive movement of the paper. Yeah, I feel like I've like really missed a lot of this paper now. <laughs> like, yeah. Dude, that that yeah yeah that That's, point is like a crazy point, but, but but I mean crazy in a good way. Yeah, from from here on out, yeah. I'm honestly just going to approach this like with a completely open mind. Just try to like just I, I have not assume nothing at this I, point because I, I I do not have was, this worked out because I, I don't even know what to make of that to be honest at this point now that. Because that 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 makes the statement incoherent now. If determinism, then no more responsibility. Exactly, exactly. Which, to be if, honest, if, I kind of think it is because I think you have to deny it in the Galen Strassen way now. Like I told, I told you that that point like rocked my like view of this um, because I had I had been almost I had almost honestly conflated the Galen style way of dismissing this with just the what I'm now calling like the naive skeptic way of, of dismissing this. And I, and I hadn't realized that I was conflating those until reading this. Um, or at least I hadn't fully realized it, but okay. And actually, and actually one more thing to kind of throw a gif in here. Giffen, yeah. if I, I still have questions about this, but if you can like try to think of like a conditional and a contrapositive where it's like, if something, then something else, but then. I know a bunch of these offhand. Do you want me to give one? No, but the the point that we could flip it because that's what I was going to do. Yeah, no, no, I agree with like the principles of the logic that make it so that those two statements are equivalent. No, 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 I concern. No, no, I know you get that. I I understand you get that. But I'm just trying to think here because, like, from my perspective here, it's like it seems intuitive at this point to me still that like more responsibility does hinge on determinism. But the contrapositive saying it ultimately doesn't. So, <laughs> so, so I'm so I'm actually like I want to try to like think of like another conditional that maybe would like flesh out my exactly. intuitions a little more. I don't know. But that but the reason why because I because I thought that was like a really like original point, but I didn't want to dwell the whole episode on it. But I thought it was like so important that it needed to be said because there's more in the paper that. I, it, I don't think it like floats free of that, obviously, but it can be analyzed without necessarily knowing what you think about that. Because I, I don't know, like I, my mind was changed, but obviously it could be changed again, you know, by like, but just by the next paper. Um, okay. So, okay. But bottom of 154, I think is a good, is a good paragraph to, to quote between bridging that and tying it to the more positive move of the paper. So, so she basically says, thus, any conditional analysis of he could have done otherwise seems too weak to satisfy the condition of freedom. Yet, if he could have done otherwise is not a conditional, it seems too strong to allow the satisfaction of the condition of value. 
We seem to think of ourselves one way when we are thinking about freedom and to think of ourselves another way when we are thinking about morality. When we are thinking about the condition of freedom, our intuitions suggest that the incompatibilists are right, for they claim that an agent can be free only insofar as his actions are not psychologically determined, um, an intuition that I previously had. But when we are thinking about the condition of value, our intuition suggests that the compatibilists are right, for they claim that an agent can be moral only insofar as his actions are psychologically determined. If our intuitions require, require that both these claims are right, then the concept of moral responsibility must be incoherent, for then a free agent can never be moral, and a moral agent can never be free. So with a great, great language there. Um, so that in like a very Susan Wolf style, I think she's really kind of giving you this, you know, the, the way that I'm learning that she writes is that she provides you with this big punch of a statement and then proceeds to address all of your questions in the pages afterwards. So I think then she moves to the more positive turn of the paper. And I'll quote the, a little bit from the top of 155 um, to introduce that. So she says, there is an asymmetry in our intuitions about freedom, which has generally been overlooked. As a result, it has seemed that the answer to the problem of free will can lie only in one of two alternatives. Either the fact that an agent's action was determined is always compatible with him being responsible for it, or the fact that an agent's action was determined will always rule his responsibility out. These two intuitions that, as I said, I, I had previously shared. Um, she continues, I shall suggest that the solution lies elsewhere, that both compatibilists and incompatibilists are wrong. What we need in order to be responsible beings, I shall argue, is a suitable combination of determinism and indetermination. Now, when she says indetermination there, I think that she's explicitly, or I'm sorry, implicitly talking about psychological indetermination. And this view might be called you know, we, we talked about John Martin Fisher's semi-compatibilism. This then might be almost like a semi-semi-compatibilism of a sort, um, which is very interesting. So she, she, so she talks about, you know, she gives us kind of two examples of, um, actually, she gives us a bunch of examples of, uh, to, to kind of prime intuitions about freedom. So she, you know, she talks about that, you know, a kleptomaniac and a victim of hypnosis it's true that they couldn't have done otherwise um, because the kleptomaniac is, is compulsed to do what they do. And in a different way, but still compulsion, the victim of hypnosis is compulsed. And, um, and then she says, you know, the most poignant example might be the victim of a deprived childhood, right. Who's, you know, steals because he never had anything growing up. And, and this is another kind of um, instance in which we might say that, these people were compelled to do something, right? So she gives us all these examples. And then she says, these examples are peculiar, however, in that they are all examples of people doing bad things. And it's funny because, I mean, those are the examples that we've talked about this entire time. It's like we've been talking about the unwilling addict, the willing addict, the, you know, the wanton, um, all of these blameworthy, potentially, actions. Um, she continues, if the agents in these cases were responsible for their actions, this would justify the claim that they deserve to be blamed. We seldom look, on the other hand, at examples of agents whose actions are morally good. We rarely ask whether an agent is truly responsible if his being responsible would make him worthy of praise. And that's, that seems, I mean, factually true of this series, right? <laughs> like, I don't, we've barely touched at all on like, um, you know, positive actions. And this is, 
okay, th- this point on 156, I think there's so much more to be said here too, because this is a this I thought this point was so interesting. And this actually um could point towards an asymmetry of consequences too, let alone uh kind of uh, uh, like uh, conditions where responsibility may obtain. So she she says, you know, I think we have stronger reasons for wanting acts of blame to be justified. If we blame someone or punish him, we are likely to be causing him some pain. But if we praise someone or reward him, we will probably only add to his pleasures. To blame someone undeservedly is, in any case, to do him an injustice, whereas to praise someone undeservedly is apt to be just as a harmless mistake, right? I I, I kind of thought that that was a really interesting point too, because she's she's pointing to this like, wow, there's this crazy asymmetry and consequences um, in mistakenly blaming or especially punishing someone is like a real like that that like we want to be really careful to avoid that whereas gratuitous praising is you know it's probably not good but but it's not but it's not nearly as bad at least in the same way um and that seems that seems obviously true but but not obvious enough that it wasn't you know that 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 was an illuminating paragraph as well um so So, okay, so th- this is more of in- getting into the positive turn. So she says, when we ask whether an agent's action is deserving of praise, it seems that we do not require that he could have done otherwise. Now, the could have done otherwise there is, is a psychological and metaphysical could have done otherwise. So, you know, like there are these kind of, um, like we've all heard these phrases about people like, I could not tell a lie, he couldn't hurt a fly, right? Um, like general character uh, descriptions of people. But uh, you know, she points out that these these phrases have to have this a certain appropriate interpretation, right? So she says, "quote He couldn't hurt a fly must allude to someone's gentleness. It must, uh, it, sorry, I lost my place. Uh, must allude to someone's gentleness. It would not be perverse to say this of someone who was in an iron lung. Or I'm sorry, it would be perverse. So like, so so she's basically pointing to, and this was something that Fisher." Uh, wrote about in the paper, like she's motioning towards this general ability. I think this was in his 2005 paper that we we talked about uh, after the 2012 one. Um, <laughs> shit, I, I like the next example too, actually. It is not admirable in George Washington that he cannot tell a lie if it is because he has a tendency to stutter that inhibits his attempt. <laughs> I thought that was funny. I did um, too. Yeah. <laughs> so, so she's basically saying that... Um, he, he could not have done otherwise then that phrase as it is used in the context of praise then must be taken to imply something like quote because he was too good like it's she, she's pointing this is where i thought the character coherence came in too she's pointing towards someone's character or in fisher's terms their general ability to be good or to do the right thing um okay i'm just curious because brian we've kind of left you out a little bit what do you take does that so that point seems obviously intuitive to me that that when we're saying someone is deserving of praise that um it's not it's not contingent on their being able to do otherwise it's just because we admire their character their general abilities yeah i'd say that aligns practically yeah. To be honest, I did find a lot. A lot. I found a lot of this paper dizzying, and the fact that we shook it up at the beginning with this explanation. <laughs> um, uh, Formal yes. logic. 
has has shaken my foundation. So <laughs> yes, the, this this paper dizzying is not a bad word to use for it because I think yeah. this this paper rewards second, third, fourth, fifth, you know, fifth. Re- I don't think yeah. you can really you you. It's hard to give a number where that you wouldn't be still rewarded by a, a rereading here. Um, but but there's something so I, I like that you said that, though, because I, I agree, like not knowing exactly where this is going to go, there does seem something clearly th- there's something at least intuitive there. Right. Like I like Brian, I like, you know, I value you as a friend. And when you say you couldn't have done otherwise, I was like, OK, like, yeah, but I value you because of your character. Right, like, or, or you know, your your generosity. Your yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing about your mind, <laughs> your, your body. Yeah, sure. You you couldn't have had a body other than the one you had, but but, <laughs> but yeah. So there seems so there's something intuitive about that point. Um, now on one fifty seven, she addresses this concern with that second paragraph. She says, "One might still be concerned that if his motives are determined, the man cannot tr- be truly deserving of praise or blame." Um, if he cannot help but have a generous character, then the fact that he is generous is not up to the man. If a man's motives are determined, one might think, then he cannot control them. So it cannot be to his credit if his motives turn out to be good. But whether a man is in control of his motives cannot be decided so simply. We must not, we must not, sorry, we must know not only whether his motives are determined, but how they are determined as well. Which th- this is really that that's the core of of her claim here. So she talks about this. She gives this great example. So she gives us an example of a man who is generous and he's generous because his mother raised him to be generous. And he adhered to that you know, lesson from her um, it, due to like normal reasons, like as a way of you know, securing her love, uh, having a good relationship with his mother, et cetera. Right now. Uh, had she not admired generosity, he would not have developed that trait. And so, you know, she she talks about, um, you know, he he garners all of the good consequences of being generous. Obviously, people reciprocate. You're well liked. You have a bunch of friends. You know, all of these good consequences that come with being generous. Now, she says, such a man perhaps would not deserve credit for his generosity, for his generosity might th- might be thought to be senseless and blind. But we can imagine a different picture in which no such claim is true, in which a generous character might be determined and yet under the agent's control. So then she she spells this out. So so she starts again. So there's this man with a generous mother who starts to develop his generosity out of a desire for her love. Same instance. But his reasons for developing a a generous nature need not be his reasons for retaining it when he grows to be more mature. So she's, she, she continues that he, he notices all of these independent pleasures that come along with being a generous person. Like I said, the consequences, right? People reciprocate the generosity. You, you know, advance different projects, your careers, your goals in life, right? And all in all, his generosity seems to cohere with his other values. It fits in well with his ideals of how one ought to live. Now she responds to this with a quote that is very interesting. So she says, such a picture, I think, might be as determined as the former one. Now there she's talking about metaphysical determinism, but it is compatible with the exercise of good sense and an open frame of mind. 
It is determined because the agent does not create his new reasons for generosity any more than he, he created his old ones. He's not Kazusui, in other words. He does not decide to feel an independent pleasure in performing acts of generosity or decide that such acts will make it easier for him to make friends. He discovers that these are consequences of his generous nature, and if he is observant and perceptive, he cannot help but discover this. So she continues that if, a, if the man's character is determined in this way, however, <clears throat> it seems absurd to say that it is not under his control. His character is determined on the basis of his reasons. And excuse me, his reasons are determined by what reasons there are. Now, sorry, excuse me again. That, so that, that phrase there, what reasons there are, is very important because in the background of all of this, she is assuming moral realism, which I, I also agree with. So that's not an issue for me. But she's, she's assuming that basically moral facts exist, right? So to be generous is not to be arbitrarily good, right? Like the, to be generous is good in some non-arbitrary way. <clears throat> so she's saying that there are, so when she says what reasons there are, she's saying there are morally independent reasons to be virtuous, essentially, right? And so she continues, what is not under his control then is that generosity be a virtue. And it is only because he realizes this that he remains a generous man. But one cannot say for this reason that his generosity is not praiseworthy because this is the best reason there is for being generous that a person could have, namely that it is moral, right? So you can't undermine someone being virtuous, in other words, because it's moral, right? And, and that would be the proximate reason for them doing it because it's determined, right? So she's, she's basically, you know, the thought occurred to me, and I'll shut up after this and let you guys respond, but the thought occurred to me that this is exactly the reason why divine command theory makes no sense, right? Because, because if, if there's, you know, so like the Christian conception of God, for instance, if there's you know, the Christian God and just morality, you know, uh, murder or rape is right or wrong, just depending on whatever God says, right? Like that's kind of what Christians have to succumb to. That's a crazy standard because then on what basis is God saying what's right or wrong, Right. So, so the, the, the thought just occurred to me that like, wow, that's actually true. But because, you know, obviously, you know, there's no reason to believe God exists and that divine command theory is wrong. So if, if we're accepting, this is a whole nother can of worms, we can do episodes on this in the future, but th there are, you know, moral uh, facts that exist independently of, of what, uh, you know, humans think about them. That, that some virtues are objectively good or bad, then you cannot say that being determined by that fact is not praiseworthy because that is the best reason there is for doing that. Okay, I, that, that's it. Uh, I'll end this. Do, what, do you guys have any reactions to that? <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a crazy <laughs> point. Yeah, when you, yeah. I don't know. I'm just, I, I, I just realized that I, I realized that I have been talking a lot. I mean, I, there, there were just parts of that paragraph that I, I just want to kind of look at again. Yes. But it's, um, so what is not under his control then is that mm -hmm. generosity is be, be a virtue. Okay, fine. Mm -hmm. And it is only because he realizes this, that he remains a generous man, but he's not responsible for realizing it though. Right. Mm -hmm. Of course. Yeah. 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 So, um, <laughs> But one cannot say for this reason that that his generosity is not praiseworthy. Mm -hmm. Um, I 
don't know. I mean, if he's not responsible for realizing that generosity is a virtue, I mean, you could either realize that fact or not, right? And I think that's where the asymmetry comes in. I think that's exactly it. That's like the, the that's the craziest turn of the paper. You're exactly right. So if you don't realize it, you're not blameworthy in the same way that you are praiseworthy because to be praiseworthy conforms with the good. Yeah. Okay. Yes. No, I, I I get that. Yeah. Yes. Like yeah. I, there, there are so many, this is why I think that this paper rewards a second reading because you get to see where she's going before, like as she's going there in the paper, because I don't know if this is how she writes all, you know, always been the two papers we've read. There's this crescendo, right. At like some point, you know, three quarters of the way through the paper. And it's only upon kind of revisiting them that, I, that at least I got the, I got what she was kind of motioning for there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so yeah, yeah, I, I maybe so, so the, the, the paragraph, the couple sentences right after that, I think maybe summarize this point. So she says, so it seems that an agent can be morally praiseworthy, even though he is determined to perform the action he performs. But if, but we have already seen that an agent cannot be morally blameworthy if he is determined to perform the action he performs. Determination, then, is compatible with an agent's responsibility for a good action, but incompatible with an agent's responsibility for a bad action. The metaphysical conditions required for an agent's responsibility will vary according to the value of the action he performs. And I think, if I'm reading this right, because at first I wrote, wait, how is this a metaphysical condition? Because wouldn't that be hinging it on uh indeterminism but but i think it's metaphysical because she's assuming moral realism right so when an action is virtuous it's virtuous like why do we say and why do we say being generous is a virtue as opposed to being a vice it's because we're assuming moral realism right that like to be generous and to eliminate suffering or or bring people pleasure in that way is objectively right or wrong in that case, it's right. Um, and because you may conf- your, your actions may conform with that, then that is the condition of being praiseworthy because it's doing things for, I mean, she, she says you, you can't, you know, that, that is determined, right? That, that uh, virtues be good, i.e. praiseworthy. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I need, I mean, there's something about this that seems obviously correct. There, I think that there are a bunch of follow-up questions from this that are very important to ask, but I don't know how you can doubt kind of the general thrust of this paper. I, well, I, I know how you could. I mean, you could, be, you could not be a moral realist, or to go back to the original point, I guess you could defend that being a wanton or having no character coherence could be a, a way to, to preserve responsibility in an indeterminate world. Or I guess there's probably some way in which a libertarian has argued for moral responsibility resulting from, you know, contra-causal free will that I just, I don't know about, but, but I don't think that I, I don't, I can't imagine I would buy that. Um, so Okay. Should I talk about, should I talk about the, the, the next page is where she really lays out kind of the asymmetry between good and bad actions. Should I move on to that? Or are there any lingering questions? Yeah. yeah, I just wanted to confirm my understanding. Well, I have two questions. Both should be quick. 
Mm -hmm. um, so my first question is, um, does she actually address moral real realism in this paper or is that no. just your inference? No, well, that she, actually connects some dots for me. Well, she, that, she that does. Um, like I may have missed it if it's later in the paper. It's on 152. Um, so she says our doubts about the existence of true moral values, however, will have to be left aside. So she's saying like, you know, I, I can't in this paper um, defend the existence of true moral values and then do this because this paper would be like, you know, double, okay, triple no, the length actually, or whatever. That yeah. clarifies it a lot. Thank you. Yeah. Because um, I it's very subtle. I totally like just missed the importance of that statement. Um, and it's and it's, it's about it's, very, it's yeah. huge. Yeah, because that's her entire thing about uh, you're totally right to to have me repeat it because that's the entire thing. She's reversing the importance because classically, I think in, in the debate, a lot of the condition of value has been conditioned upon the condition of freedom. Now mm. she's reversing that. Um, and that's where all of her asymmetry is based on. Yeah, I, yeah. it really like it went over my, I, when you're phrasing it, like using like proper terminology and explaining like the moral realism aspect, I can see how that piece slots in here, it's like mm. especially the paragraph we just talked about. So then just to um, clarify one last thing, the uh, second to last paragraph on 158 ends with a sentence. This is the best reason for being generous that a person could have. Mm -hmm. And then I just wanted to clarify that the this meant that. Um, because he realizes that generosity is a virtue he chooses to be. So it's like recognition exactly. of the re Okay. Just wanted to make sure exactly that's important to reiterate before we go on. That's kind <laughs> exactly. of the foundation of the entire second half. Exactly. Because it, she's pointing towards the fact that it would be nonsensical to be like, well, don't you get it? Generosity is only a virtue because it's like, you know, a good thing to do. You'd be like, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So you're yeah, totally right. Like now. that's, that's, yeah. that's a huge, well, I want to keep all of it besides that little, comment i said because that you're totally right like that's where all of her like grounding is um yeah because i mean yeah we'll get to it very shortly but like whenever she was saying like capital t like true and the capital g good i now understand where that slots in because before mm -hmm. i was like what on earth is she trying to communicate yeah. with this like phrase yeah. like, is this something that you know i should have read the previous paper like the true and the good by susan wolf but now like, it's, slot it's slotting in. No, right? unfortunately, we're about to go over to, this. Like, Aristotle, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, you. There, there is a little bit. Didn't of... do my prerequisite Aristotle reading for the week. <laughs> yeah, you're making. Me... There is a little bit of curse of knowledge working here for me with some of the terminology. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, but I'm. I'm glad I asked because. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm glad I, you asked too. I'm going to be looking at this with fresh eyes for the remainder of the paper. So on 159 is where she really kind of lays out the asymmetry between good and bad acts. Then. Um, so, okay, let's talk about good first. So, so she says halfway through the first paragraph, but the condition must be one uh, that separates the good actions from the bad. The condition that is must be essentially value-laden. An analysis of the condition of freedom that might do the trick is, quote, he could have done otherwise if there had been good and sufficient reason. Uh, then she continues, where the could have done otherwise in the analysis is not a conditional at all. And when she says conditional at all, she means like the metaphysical counterfactual, right? Like he, like the Frankfurt PAP, he could have done otherwise. Um, she continues for presumably an action is morally praiseworthy only if there are no good and sufficient reasons to do something else. An action is only morally blameworthy only if there are good and sufficient reasons to do something else. Thus, 
When an agent performs a good action, the condition of freedom is a counterfactual, though it is required that the agent would have been able to do otherwise had there been good and sufficient reason to do so, the situation in which the good acting agent actually found himself is a situation in which there was no such reason. Thus, it is compatible with the satisfaction of the condition of freedom that the agent in question could not actually have done other than what he actually did. And just to kind of translate that a little bit, she's saying that like, okay, Brian does a morally upstanding or, uh, you know, uh, upstanding. Well, um, yeah, yeah. Okay. That sounded wrong for whatever reason. Sounds good. I'll stand up. <laughs> stand up, Brian. I just been <laughs> bloviating so much that like the word, you know, right. So Brian performs a morally upstanding action, right? Um, he, he does a good deed for someone. Now to say that the condition of uh, praiseworthiness is, uh, is is contingent on his ability to do otherwise doesn't make a whole lot of sense in this situation because there wasn't reason to do otherwise right so brian's a good person and he did what was morally right in this scenario and for him to have you know had reason to do otherwise wolf is saying the scenario had to be different right like brian did the right thing here so now, she then juxtaposes that with if Brian had performed the wrong action. So continuing in that same paragraph, when an agent performs a bad action, however, the condition of freedom is not a counterfactual. The bad acting agent does what he does in the face of good and sufficient reasons to do otherwise. So again, she's assuming that there are non-arbitrary good and sufficient reasons to do otherwise, like in her assuming of moral realism. Thus, the condition of freedom requires that the agent in this case could have done otherwise in just the situation in which he was actually placed. So she's saying, no, no, Brian, like right here and now you did the wrong thing and you should have acted differently given the same conditions. We don't need to change anything about this scenario for you to have acted or for you to have should have acted differently. An agent then can be determined to perform a good action and still be morally praiseworthy. But if an agent is to be blameworthy, he must unconditionally have been able to do something else. I'll, I guess I'll pause for any questions. I'm curious from Adam because of the, the brow. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm just thinking about yeah, yeah. Um, just, just sufficient in this case. Like, mm. are we defining sufficient as you know um, a reason that would actually result in behavior? you're asking what type of reasons responsive is she strong moderate or weak essentially yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. that's exactly where i'm going with that because i i was just wondering like okay I, I think i buy into it if i think if i'm reading this correctly and she's saying sufficient as in it would result in behavior in that mm -hmm. you know okay the bad acting agent does what he does mm -hmm. in the face of good and sufficient reasons to do otherwise yeah, reasons yeah. that he doesn't recognize that but that would be sufficient if he did recognize them yeah from an external perspective exactly okay. exactly yes. so Yes. So I think I think I buy in mm -hmm. um, as long as I'm reading that correctly. And it's I think not you are because I think the other paper we read it was sufficient was you know you could recognize it as a sufficient reason but then not act upon it. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. like it's it it satisfies mm -hmm. you know whatever conditions you might have, but you're not you don't necessarily have to act upon that reason. But I think yeah. it's, it's a little different here. I think it is too. And I think it hinges on her grounding it in this like moral realism. Um, okay. Because because I think now uh, this is a little bit of interpretation for me, but I, I think that when she says good and sufficient reasons to do otherwise, she's saying 
there exists independent of what this person thinks in the scenario, a good and sufficient reason to do otherwise. Now, whether he conforms with that or not, determines the rest sure. yeah sure okay, okay. I, that, that that's how i read it then okay yeah. nice nice okay yeah. good good um okay so so maybe so she's she, a good way to illustrate this analysis um and how it differs from the previous analysis is to return to this case of the deprived child um so she you know she says we so we imagined a case in which a man who steals money uh did so because of his upbringing and he was fully aware of what he was doing um, but, but it seems like he shouldn't be blamed for committing the crime because we couldn't reasonably expect him to do anything else to see, you know, the, the good and sufficient reasons to do otherwise. Um, and she talks about his upbringing, you know, maybe he was beaten by his father and neglected by his mother, right? Like there's going to be a backstory to, to why he's doing this. Um, uh, so, you know, but from this point of view, it is natural to conclude that respecting other people's property would be foolish because uh, we're assuming that no one had ever, you know, respected his, you know, he, he is the way he is. This is the, basically the Robert Harris case that we talked about in a, in Watson's paper from 87. Um, and so next paragraph, she says, yet this agent seems to have as much control over his life as we are apt to have over ours. He would have done otherwise if he had tried. He would have tried to do otherwise if he had chosen, and he would have chosen to do otherwise if he had had reason. It is because he couldn't have had reason that this agent should not be blamed. Um, so next paragraph, she, she clarifies, my analysis, however, proposes a condition that is not internal to the agent, and it allows us to state the relevant difference. Namely that whereas our childhoods fell within a range of normal dependence, decency, his was severely severely deprived. The consequence this has is that he, unlike us, could not have had reasons, even though there were reasons around. So she's saying, and she says this next, it requires as well that the world cooperate in such a way that our most fundamental selves have the opportunity to develop into the selves they ought to be which is like a beautiful point because she's basically pointing to this constitutive luck aspect that Nagel brings up. Um, Like you have to have had, she's basically just, you know, admitting that you have to have good fortune. Like you have to have good luck essentially to end up as a moral actor. Um, And when you don't, you are unable to act in accordance with the good. Like you are unable to adhere to it in the way that would make you praiseworthy, namely for adhering to the good um, or like, you know, the, the moral thing to do, the right thing to do. So she's basically saying like, wow, you know, th- this is, you know, radically kind of, um, you know, compassionate in the same way that a lot of the, you know, uh, like moral skeptic, you know, like, like Sam Harris, who we like open the series with ma- makes this point all the time. Like, we, you know, it all comes down to luck. Like everything's luck. You have to have, and this is the coolest part about her asymmetrical view. She gets to elevate the value of good actions while still retaining the non retributive view that we take of bad actions. Those people are still unlucky 
in the same way that they were. But now we get to praise people because they actually conform to the moral thing to do. And yes, it is luck, but they are conforming to, as she says, the best possible reason to do something, right? And and this is where I said that her mention of the consequences of praising and blaming people can just be, I mean, that can, that paragraph, it can just be, you know, exploded, right? Because all of the benefits of of positive, uh, you know, praising can then be allowed to actually take work while we get to just look at basically how to rehabilitate or change people for the better. Like it, it does cancel out retributivism in that way, I think, or at least it, I don't know if Wolf necessarily has that follow, but I, but I think it could follow from this view. So, you know, I, I love, I just, I love that addition and i think the paper would be really lacking without that like yeah like the world has to cooperate in our favor and obviously we're part of the world in that sense um and so so she says on 161 thus the problem of free will has been misrepresented insofar as it has been thought to be a purely metaphysical problem um and and she exemplifies this i think really brilliantly in the uh, second to last paragraph she says in fact however um such reasoning rests on a category mistake. The, these two explanations do not necessarily compete for they are explanations of different kinds. So she gives this example about, um, you, you ask me the name of the capital of Nevada and I reply, Carson City. We can explain why I gave the answer I do in either of the following ways. First, we can point out that when I was in the fifth grade, I had to memorize the capitals of the 50 states. I was taught to believe that Carson City was the capital of Nevada, and I was subsequently positively reinforced to do so. Second, we can also point out that Carson City is the capital of Nevada, and that this was, after all, what you wanted to know. So on the other hand, I gave my answer because I was taught, and on the other, I gave my answer because it was right. So she's pointing out this, and we've uh, we talked about this before. I mentioned, um, you know, if you if you ask, you know, I ask you, you know, Adam, why did you go to the store? And you tell me the positions of each of your neurons and how they fired and how that firing resulted in certain motor activity. I'd be like, dude, I, I just wanted to know like what you needed from the store, right? So there's these two levels of analyses going on. There is that metaphysical. Uh, determinism and then there's that psychological determinism or not um and so so she's just pointing out that yeah there's these two viewpoints you can do an act because you were determined to do it and you can do that act because it was the right thing to do um and so uh, on 162 she says in light of this it should be clear that no standard incompatibilist views about the conditions of moral responsibility can be right for according to these views an agent is free only if he is the sort of agent whose actions are not causally, i.e. metaphysically, determined at all. And that, I mean, that that was the gut punch that I had suffered that I was talking about. So, yeah, she's essentially saying, like, you know, non-Galen style and compatibilists have the same unreasonable standard that libertarians do. Like, they're all hinging this hope of moral responsibility on this metaphysical freedom. But as we've already talked about, she's she's not you know she points out that that's not even a freedom worth wanting it's incoherent almost um not almost i think it is incoherent and you know it, um 
she, she again, I think she's pointing to this problem with the, like a Christian conception of God. It's unconstrained from even the good, right? Like God doesn't even get, he doesn't have the opportunity to conform with the good. If you believe, you know, divine command theory, um, you know, she has that quote from Sartre, uh, you know, he would condemned to be free. Um, and that doesn't, it, God doesn't even have the opportunity to have that applied to him. Um, so, okay, may, maybe, so, okay, I know we're, I don't know how long we've been going for at this point, but I, I just, I had this one thing, I had starred next to it, I just, I loved this. So she says, thus, views that offer conditional analyses of the ability to do otherwise, views like mine, take freedom to consist in the ability to be determined in a particular way, are generally compatibilist views. For insofar as an agent is determined in the right way, the agent must be said to be acting freely. Like the compatibilists, then, I am claiming that whether an agent is morally responsible depends not on whether, but on how that agent is determined. Which is like a very, I, that locution I think is very good. Because, she, I mean, she's just, I just, I would just be reiterating the point, but, uh, and maybe we can start to wind down on this because I, I, I don't know, I'll, I'll look at it in a second, but, um, you know, she's basically she's basically just pointing to this. Wow, you know, Brian does a great deed, and when he does that, he's determined to do it by a myriad of factors that, you know, someone like Sam Harris would want to point out: his upbringing, his education, the random influence of the sun radiation on his neurons and how they fire, right? And introduce quantum randomness into that, however you want, right? Um, but he but he does a good action. Um, and so because he actually conforms to the morally right thing to do, he is praiseworthy in a way that he wouldn't be if he was not afforded the opportunity, um, to, to be determined in the right way. So in the first scenario, you're determined in the right way because you did the right action. And in the second, you're not because you, you weren't really afforded the opportunity to do the right action. I don't know what are thoughts about this view kind of in general at this point yeah i think honestly the thing that helped the most was the last example with the mm. carson city nevada i think mm. that really got at the heart of the different types of determined so yeah um, yeah <laughs> yeah yeah because because i think the thing that she's pointing out right is like brian if you do something heinous or if you do something really really you know just really moral like you were just a really like just a super good guy in this scenario right you're equally as metaphysically determined in both but you would be totally leaving out something huge if that was the level of analysis you stopped on you know what i mean because yeah. you could describe your neurons firing in their totality in both scenarios and you've left out something huge if that's the level of analysis you stop on right you know what I mean? And like where this kind of hits home interpersonally um, is, I mean, how this gets expressed. Um, so, yeah, yeah, maybe we can maybe we should wrap up on that point because it's not it's not it's not exactly the end of the paper. Um, I guess one 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 yeah. thing I just want to like ask about is how yeah. strong is this claim that she's making? <laughs> yes. here? I mean, like, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. that's why I've been kind of just like sitting back and listening. Cause like, mm. I understand everything you've said. I've been reading along and I'm like, okay, I, I, I understand the claims being made to yeah. a degree, but is this just another 
mm. you know, compatibilism. Cause otherwise I, I like it a lot. I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. I write it. It's actually, it's ingenious in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, but I, I feel like she's trying to make a bigger case than maybe what I'm comfortable with. What does she with, do right? with this? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I don't know. I don't know. Is she going? Yeah. I, I totally get your impulse because here's the thing. Like, I, so I've been, you know, like praising this, putting a, you know, super positive spin on it. Honestly, just because I think the view kind of, it's hard to do, it's hard to put the view out there while also trying to ask all of these questions that need asked, right? I was trying to do a I was, I was weighing on the side of like exegesis work. Um, but yeah, so like, here, a big question that I have is, because she only mentioned it in that one paragraph, how I wonder how she views consequentialist considerations in light of this too, right? Um, because I think it's clear that she's, you know, she, there, I, I don't know how she would use this paper or the thesis to justify any sort of like retributivism, right? Um, but I don't know. This is such like an ill-informed question. I, I just want to know where this, where does this paper sit in a larger view? Do you know what I mean? Because I don't know. I'm kind of, I, I kind of am starting to understand where I think this might situate in my larger view. But obviously, a my larger view isn't worked out, and b it's not of interest in the same way that Wolf's larger view would be, like to, with respect to this paper. I don't know. So, yeah. Does this allow her? I don't, how does this, yes. Uh, there's just a lot of questions here. Like how would this intersect with, okay, here's an, here's a, here's a really interesting question for me, at least someone fits the conditions for being praiseworthy, let's say, but praising them would produce poor outcomes. Right. Um, ah, now, now, oh, oh, shit, actually. Okay. Dep okay. Depending on what her like views on morality are, she could say that that's incoherent because you've, it's like almost a tautology that I've said, right. Or a reverse tautology. Um, because if she's saying that like someone being praiseworthy conforms with them doing the right thing. And if it depends on like, you know, if she's like a consequentialist or whatever, that would be what constitutes the right thing. Then if I say, but what if praising them resulted in bad consequences, she'd be like, but you just that like that betrays the fact that it would be praiseworthy then. Like, I, I don't know. I'm, I don't know if she would say that, but that would be maybe what I would say to me there. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Just okay. some, some 1984 situation. Just like, <laughs> yeah. just an act of generosity. Is, yeah. You know, you're praised for it, that you're executed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, okay. Maybe what about this then is like, okay, what if, so there seems to me like instances wherein you want to take the objective attitude towards someone for a number of reasons, right? A lot of the reasons, a lot of the ones that come up often for us, might be that you're stuck in a really shitty system, or like a situation, right? It's hard to, it's hard, again, it's hard to give an example without betraying something a little too close to home in, in one sense here. But like, you know, let's say that you're, 
let's say that you're like in a work environment or something that is extremely kind of maladaptive, right? And someone someone does something that is otherwise praiseworthy, but you want to take the objective stance towards that person, that scenario, and kind of factor in how you praising them would turn back on the consequences for you or the rest of the team or something like that, right? Does what I so like I don't I just don't know like on this account do you have that availability to still take the objective stance towards someone even if they are praiseworthy for doing the right thing? I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know how like when like how like the intersection of like consequences like I feel like I feel like yes. Yeah. It's a completely different discussion at this point. You know what I mean? I, I, like, yeah, yeah. Oh, we're not going to, I'm just kind of raising questions. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I'm, I'm, I'm just still thinking about just like the depth yes. of like, like um, being praiseworthy here. Cause it, it's mm. like, like obviously my, my intuition is that there's a difference between, you know, someone that has a generous nature that mm. they've arrived at through reason and introspection and uh just general awareness versus someone that this behavior is entirely learned and they don't have like independent reasons outside of being taught yeah right like like that i get that's a clear difference to me yes but but like in areas where it's where it comes down to okay good and sufficient reasons to do otherwise Mm. so in some cases where you do something good and there aren't good and sufficient reasons to do otherwise, whether you've recognized, you know, like it's, mm. it's not, even, not even once they've recognized, but they're just, there are no good and sufficient reasons to do otherwise. I don't, I don't know why in what deep sense you'd be praiseworthy. Yeah. For, yeah. Yeah. For I, I just like, what does deserve mean in this account? Is it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I yes. just like, it's, it's almost like, yes. I mean, once again, I, I, I don't, I don't want to be like too reductive here. Sure. But it's almost like an input, you know, could have only led to one behavior in mm. a well-functioning robot. In this case, like you've got poorly functioning robots that, mm. you know, um, like, you know, like she used like the term, like almost like the past where mm. it's like, you know, they are determined by the past rather than by the good in this case. Mm. Like, so, or, and that, and that can either be, you know, um, just kind of templates for good reasoning and good morals have never been presented to them or they've been taught mm. something um, just either either the good morals they've been taught but never have actually like entered some sort of like reasoning capacity or they've yeah. just been taught bad morals and then the same they have never actually entered like a reasoning capacity that has otherwise like exchanged them for good morals but i, I don't know it's i just i don't see it in a deep sense here i don't D- does deserve mean that you are a fit candidate for being praised or does deserve mean that you are sort of owed in some extra consequentialist sense i like that language actually i i want to know the answer to that and i and i will plan to ask her that (laughs) because that that is an important question for me 
Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that's a good way of putting it exactly. Yeah, it's great. Because like, I, I, I agree with the former, and I probably disagree with the latter. So. Yeah, yes, <laughs> so, yes, yes, I totally, yeah, yeah. So, I totally, we're totally yeah. on the same page. That was the same question I had. Yeah. yeah. It also makes me wonder about amoral actions. And this is where I think that this view might succumb to the same necessity of a character account that Fisher's view does. Remember we were talking about this, where it was like, there are some actions that that people just do and they're not exactly like really that moral questions or like, it's just, it comes to, it's almost like a, like, like interests are like this. Right. Um, like I'm interested in some things and not others. And it's not really a moral question of whether I'm interested in, um, you know, restoring uh, like, you know, my old BMW, as opposed to being interested in any number, like just any other interest, like that doesn't seem to be a moral question to me. Right. So it's like, <laughs> what? Uh, I just thought of a funny way to portray it as a moral question. but <laughs> <laughs> Just like some absurd portrayal. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Just one, because it's like a, I don't, I, I just, I wonder how sort of amoral, um, wonder how so amoral there, things fit into this view. Yeah. So I'm just curious. Um, this is just kind of a final side question, but mm -hmm. within like the moral realism framework, is there like differing views on amorality or like, are you kind of, <laughs> yeah, I'm guessing there's a spectrum. Okay. So it doesn't really, <laughs> yeah. we'd have to actually specifically ask Wolf here. It's not like her moral yeah. uh, realism, you know, suggests one or the other. We, we should okay. totally do a whole series on on just like ethics broadly. But I mean, yeah, because there's also so there's a difference between being even a moral realist and a moral objectivist. Um, so, so like the, the, I, ch I try to choose my words carefully. And again, I should say that like I actually don't know Wolf's views on these questions specifically. This is how kind of I'm interpreting her. But I mean, cl clearly she is saying that the moral values exist in some independent sense. And, and that's what moral realism is. But moral objectivism is that there is like a right answer, not that just there like are right answers, if that kind of makes sense. We'll, we'll, do, we'll do a series on morality at some point. Um, but like, yeah, I don't know, Adam, I'm also wondering if, if honestly the part that I kind of was starting to skip over at the end is the part that answers some of your questions that you were raising because they're really good ones. But she because she she goes into more depth about the psychological determination or indetermination. Right. And there she's she's talking about deliberation. Right. Um, and because. She. These okay, this might get cut, this might not, but now I just want to read these like because now I'm curious in, in your questions. So she says on 164, um, what we need to know in particular is that when an agent performs a wrong action, he could have performed the right action for the right reasons instead. That is, first, the agent could have had the interest that the agent ought to have had, and second, the agent could have acted on the interests on which he ought to have acted. Corresponding to these two possibilities. We can imagine two sorts of a moral failure. The first corresponds to negligence and the second is weakness. So she, she talks about these and I think they're obvious, right? Negligence is just not even considering something and weakness is knowing the right thing to do, but not doing it, right? Sure. So she says, uh, almost bottom paragraph, there is admittedly some difficulty in establishing that an agent who performs a morally bad action satisfies the condition of freedom. It is hard to know whether an agent who did one thing could have done another instead, but presumably we decide 
But presumably, we decide such questions now on the basis of statistical evidence. And if, in fact, these actions are not determined, this would be the best method there can be. We decide, in other words, that an agent could have done otherwise if others in his situation have done otherwise. And these others are like him in all apparent relevant ways. Or we decide that an agent could not have done, could have done otherwise if he himself has done otherwise in situations that are like the one in which all apparently relevant ways are, are like this one in all apparently relevant ways. So again, with Fisher, she's pointing to this kind of general ability, excuse me, that people have to either generally act morally in conditions like the one they're in now, or if they generally fail. Um, and she says it should be emphasized that the indetermination with which we are concerned here is indetermination only at the level of psychological explanation. So she's talking about deliberation, like should I do this thing or should I do the other thing, in which one of those is moral and the other not. Such indetermination is compatible with determination at other levels of explanation. Again, she's talking like we could describe it in terms of neurons um, firing or whatever, but that's not the right level of analysis. Because continuing, quote, presumably an agent who does the right thing for the right reasons deserves praise for his actions, whether it was determined or not, psychologically determined or not. But whereas indetermination is, is compatible with the claim that an agent is deserving of praise, it is essential to the justification of the claim that an wait, it is essential to the justification of the claim that an agent is deserving of blame. Uh, so he had so so the way I'm reading that is. You could be praiseworthy whether or not you were psychologically determined to do something or not. And I think that what she's saying is that, you know, Giffen, you're confronted with a moral dilemma mm -hmm. and it's just in your character. You just do the right thing and you don't actually deliberate about it. That's still praiseworthy because that just means you have a good character, right? It's also praiseworthy if you deliberate about it, though, because you arrived at the right conclusion. You deliberated correctly. Right. And the deliberation is like the psychological determinism aspect. I, indeterminism. Because well, if you're, if you're deliberate. Yeah, I mean, okay, yeah. Yeah, yes. I just, yeah, I didn't want the audience to get Right, no, I understand. That. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but then she seems to be saying, whereas indetermination is compatible with the claim that an agent is deserving of praise, it is essential to the justification of the claim that an agent is deserving of blame because, oh shit, this actually clicked for me. Okay. Because you have to psychologically, you would have to uh, deliberate about what to do and then choose the wrong moral action, right? To be because blameworthy. To be exactly, to be blameworthy. Um, because if you just, you know, if you're conditioned to do the wrong thing, that's where we go back to, you're basically unlucky. The world didn't cooperate in a way for you to be. Now, I now this is where I might differ um, in saying that, like, no, you're again, this comes down to what we mean by deserving of blame, right? Because qua Galen Strassen, like, I don't think that you're deserving in a dessert based sense of blame, even if you do psychologically deliberate. But Wolf has changed my mind that I can't just say because determinism is true. Um, I have to go to the Galen justification for that. Um, but, but to be honest, um, it is essential for the justification thing. Hmm. Yeah. That, that might be a point of departure actually. Yeah. I don't think that, I don't think that psychological, de de uh, indetermination, i.e. deliberation, which then results in doing the wrong action does make you deserving of blame. 
I don't I don't think that does. Where, where is this exactly? This is 165. Dead, dead center of 165. Um, that might be a point of departure, actually, from us or between her and I, which would be interesting. But but the problem is this is at, like right at the end of the paper. So it's more of like a kind of concluding remark. Um, she she does. I don't know what these quotes say. I forget. But let me read. I've got three quotes to end on. And then 166 top of it, she says, in order to have control over the moral quality of his actions. An agent must have certain requisite abilities. In particular, the ability is necessary to see and understand the reasons and interests he ought to see and understand, uh, to, uh, sorry, see and understand, and the ability is necessary to direct his actions in accordance with these reasons and interests. So this actually seems to me to be the grounding of a, of a reasons responsive view. Um, so you have to have these general abilities to, to see like these moral reasons. And at the end of this paragraph, she says the responsible agent who performs a bad action fails to exercise these abilities sufficiently, though there is no complete explanation of why he fails. The responsible agent who performs a good action does exercise the abilities. It may or may not be the case that it is determined psychologically that he exercised them. Uh, the freedom required for moral responsibility, then, is the freedom to be good. Only this kind of freedom will be neither too much nor too little. For then the agent is not so free as to be free from moral reasons, i.e. Yahweh, nor so unfree as to make these reasons ineffective, i.e. the bad actor. Yeah, to be psychologically determined to do the bad thing. I don't know. There's so There are so many things that I love about this paper, and there are also so many things that I just need to think about and kind of let simmer and, and like have follow-up questions about. But... I will say I, I love this paper. This is very good. Yeah, I think I got, I got a lot more out of this paper going through it this time. Mm. Honestly, uh, mm. so. yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad. I, I wonder if this may end up being one of those papers where I revisit it, you know, six months from now and I'm able to just get a lot more out of it because I've let it really congeal with other. I, I think that that is what this paper is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just circling back with an understanding of what moral realism is really um, <laughs> helped because before then it was like there was a step that was in like inferable, but that was never stated or at least like the one line that suggested it I missed. So I was the entire time, I'm like, ought to see the true and the good. <laughs> like, would you like to explain your definitions, please? But now, yeah. like, it's, it's coming together. And There's it a fair bit together of morality more. working, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, okay. I, I think, uh, honestly, I can't make any more reasonable sounds about this paper at this point. We've been going for a, a long time, so I think we should end at this point, but... I think this paper, if, okay, if you're listening still at this point, read this paper for yourself because it, it, it's one of those papers, I think, that you do have to read for yourself. Um, okay, I don't know what we'll be returning with next time, but, um, but I hope that this was enjoyable um, and, uh, and I hope this helped people, uh, I don't know, maybe get a, get a little understanding of this paper. Um, so uh, tune in next time for uh, more on moral responsibility.